Thank you for downloading this Desenio podcast. For more information, visit DesenioDaily.com. We hope you enjoy the programme. Why do we gender the world around us? From Bic pens for her, through to Kleenex man-sized tissues, gender has a tendency to intrude in areas where it's perhaps not welcome. My name's Ollie Stratford, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Desenio, and in October 2018, I was joined at the Moy Showroom in London to discuss the gendering of objects and furniture. Present for the conversation were Nina Power, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Roehampton, Betty Marenko, Course Leader in Contextual Studies on the BA Product Design course at Central St. Martins, and Designers and Interior Architects, Abe Rogers and Nika Zapantz. The conversation has kind of grown out of a couple of different things. One being an essay which Nina wrote for us, which is called Gendered Objects, and looked at some of these uh, issues and looked at how we can conceive of gender in furniture design, maybe, and some strategies around that. The other side is a um, product by Nika, which is the Golden Chair from 2013, and which there's also a new edition now in black. And sort of thinking a little bit on how something as small as like a colour change, it's the same chair, sort of shifts some of the connotations, not just gender, but maybe gender around an object. So first of all, we're going to open with the question what it means for an object to be gendered, because there's a couple of different ways around that. So on the one hand, you have objects which are designed or marketed in the sense of what, uh, towards one particular gender. So maybe the BIC for her pens. It's an object which is told it's for women or it's Yorkie bars for men. And then on the other hand, you have objects that aren't necessarily or maybe a little bit less blatantly being pushed towards a specific object, uh, a specific gender, but which are themselves described as masculine or feminine. So I wondered if someone would like to start by uh, maybe looking at those two notions. Take your pick as to which, and is there crossover between those? Nina, as you wrote the initial article, I might pick on you first. Okay. But maybe you can give us a little bit of a primer. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Part of it was looking at um, the pointlessness of gendered objects in some ways. And obviously there's a lot of kind of internet sites that turn to kind of mockery, like the Vic for Her Pens was a kind of classic thing where people wrote hilarious uh, Amazon reviews about how they felt more feminine using this pen and now they have lots of boyfriends and stuff and, you know, uh, this kind of thing. And so there was a kind of, the, in the first place, maybe this re recognition of a kind of increase in the, the pointless gendering. Well, let's say the gendering of objects that need not have been gendered. And in the context, I guess, of a sort of retrenchment or a sort of reinforcement of gendering, you know, gendered objects, particularly for children, um, you know, princess stuff for girls and, you know, masculine toys and boys and this kind of thing. Um, and also the kind of economic dimension of that and to say, you know, you can charge more if you gender things somehow. And we looked at some of the stats on that and it's, you know, it's borne out. Um, but also that in the context of maybe like a different discussion around gender, which is sort of happening you know, where we're talking maybe about gender fluidity or kind of, you know, a transformation perhaps in uh, how we think about gender. So gender not just as this kind of imposition in which you either fail or pass at it and you're either, you know, a good woman or a good man or, a, you know, a feminine girl and, and all of this, but, like, how, how at the same time you, you have this kind of, you know, sort of imposed uh, set of gender stereotypes um, and then how we kind of get away from that, basically. And we were then thinking about questions of drag and how we can... Uh, use drag to think about objects differently. Um, so that was that was part of it, I suppose. Like starting with the smaller objects and then thinking up 
in different ways. And Betty, you've begun research into gender uh, within a design context. What sort of drew you towards that? And what's, I, I know it's at an early stage, the research into it, but what's your kind of thinking around it at the moment? Yes, I have started working on uh, uh, the relationship between gender and design almost by accident. Okay? Someone asked me to think about it, and I started researching just this summer. And to my horror, I have discovered that there are a lot of products, uh, objects uh, out there that have been designed by men for a world which includes both men and women, and yet, uh, disregarding the specificity of uh, uh, women's behavior, response, uh, and experience. So what I'm doing right now is collecting a series of examples uh, in this sense. And uh, I'm not looking so much uh, at uh, um, the sort of gender washing or pinkification <laughs> like the big pen, because those examples are very blatant and we can laugh even though they're still there. Um, I like to look at objects uh, that are more in the background. So they're completely uh, accepted, normalized, naturalized. I, we take them for granted because they're there. Maybe they've been there for a long time. I'll give you an example. I discovered the crash test dummies. You might know this, but until this summer, I didn't know. Crash test dummies, um, which are being used in the car industry since the late 40s, I'm told, through the US Army have been modeled on a particular body type, the American average man. The problem starts when, as you can imagine, also women use cars, are passengers drive cars. And the statistics have pointed out that the same type of accident would create 47% more serious injury for a woman than for a man. So, obviously, you would think, uh, okay, something has to be done. Let's model a, car, uh, a crash test dummy on a female body. And this happened in 2011. It's hard to believe, right? But this, this is what I am discovering. And I'm really um, mildly shocked, but also thinking, okay, what's happening in those design team? Are there no women on the design team of the crash test dummy, for instance? So what I'm interested in is in the invisibility of uh, design scripts uh, that are contained within objects that we use every day, and they, they channel uh, certain stereotypes. Uh, sometimes the stereotypes are, are just a, a little bit misogynist. Uh, sometimes they actually injure half of the world population. Oben Nika, how does this play out in your work? Because both of you are designing furniture and spaces for people. You know, you're de designing for a wide audience and lots of different type of people. How do you kind of think about gender in your work? For me, what's really interesting is to see objects which have personality. And you look at the gold chair and its fine legs, and, you know, and it's, it starts to become a creature which we can, we can communicate with. And as soon as you start to have a piece of furniture which has sculptural or amorphic potential, then its, its gender and its personality needs to be considered, and then it becomes a much longer discussion. But Nika, while we were talking before, you mentioned that your work is often described as feminine. It's a label that gets applied to it very, very regularly, but said you specifically have never referred to it in that way. I think it's a very dangerous word to use uh, in a connotation, especially with contemporary design, because, of course, my profession is contemporary design. 
so this was something that was labeled to my work, and I would say that some of my work was really misunderstood by the general public or journalists, because what I try to do in my work, it's, uh, overall, I like to work with icons and strong symbols. Sometimes this can be a color, sometimes this can be a visual element. Uh, so something, something that has its predominant meaning. And what I really like to do is to take this predominant meaning out of the context, out of the ghetto, you could say. Let's say in the case of Lolita Lamp, uh, I would say the lace was taken out of the ghetto because it had some predominant meaning. And I tried to use it in a way where this meaning would become something new, would become genderless in a way. So this was the intention from the creative point of view, uh, because I think the design today has a, a very loud voice. Of course, we are in design always still based on modernist principles, following the technology, the innovation, the function, but in the end, we have the ability to touch subjects, and with some of my objects, I also touched the subjects of gender equality in contemporary design. I wonder if we could touch on a little bit what that temptation is to ascribe gender to inanimate objects. Because in some, in, well, you know, it's a nonsense to a degree. Like, why, why would you ascribe a, ascribe a gender to a chair or a table or whatever? But it seems to be something that's quite prevalent and which comes back again and again and again. Why is that? Why are people so tempted to discuss inanimate, genderless objects in terms of gender? I think because there is an anxiety around identity, um, you know, and that, that, you know, we sort of know implicitly and explicitly what these stereotypes are and how we might relate to them and how we fit in and, and so on. And I, and I think actually there has been a move back. If you think about a lot of the second wave feminist work in the 70s, you know, and I, you know, as a child in the 80s, you know, there, it, I, it felt much more degendered. And it seems like there has been a kind of regression or a kind of, you know, a, a sort of uh, I don't know, a reassertion of gender in a certain way, and, you know, which moves away from this idea of the abolition of gender. And if we think about the abolition of gender not only as a political and social project, you know, which would be basically the unleashing of, of people's expression, you know, that, that anybody could act and be and wear and, and, and behave however they, they liked, you know, which is an ex extremely emancipatory project. You know, we don't live in that world. We don't live in a world in which, you know, gender is abolished. You know, we actually live in a world in which gender is performed constantly, is reinforced, uh, you know, all the time. And I think maybe especially for men, you know, if, you, if you're not a masculine man, you know, you, you suffer a lot, <laughs> actually. Um, you know, similarly, if you're not a particularly feminine woman, you know, it, it, you know there are kind of social penalties for being uh, androgynous or for not conforming in certain ways. And I think, you know, if we're thinking about design, whether, you know, we're moving from the smaller object to the larger scale, like thinking about buildings, I mean, it, you know, there, there are kind of very difficult questions. You know, there are questions about access and, and sex, we might say, you know, if we talk about, uh, you know, sex difference, right? Um, this isn't exactly the same question as, as gender, and we might talk about how we might uh, design buildings or larger uh, of design objects for men and women, you know, to, that recognize things like precisely the crash test dummy problem of, you know, average, different average height. So how do we both recognize, you know, differences, but also not tie people to them in, in other ways? You know, and it's a very, very difficult question, this, but, you know, the larger you get up, yes, you're right. I mean, when we talk about smaller objects, it's almost like a joke, you know, why gender this? But when we have implicitly gendered decisions, design decisions being made, you know, that's a big problem. And, and then the question of representation comes up, you know, if we're talking about design or architecture, you know, what happens to the women? You know, where is the discussion? 
you know, why doesn't someone say, well, hang on a minute, you know, the average height of a woman isn't this, it's, it's that, you know. But it's funny we're talking about height. See, the way it's more about emotions to, to an extent and how both a building or a, an object or a car communicates with you and how it's designed to communicate with you or to, to, to market you. And I think that is why the feminine has become such a, a real... And the masculine, these two stereotypes, become such a resurgence as additional tools. There's continuously in fashion and design attempts to, to become more and more fickle, to cross over and for men to wear skirts and to wrap up chairs in blankets or, you know, to change their, their appearance and, and, and natures. But the, the market's quite crude and it ends up back in these very direct split, you know, split things. And we can sell more 501 genes if they're for women, they're for men, so we, we, we market that further. I mean, in a sense, perhaps the, the idea that um, gender objects are out there, and I agree with you, there is a re-entrenchment of uh, those stereotypes in, in objects. And I'm wondering if one of the reasons might be because they're sort of a, um, shortcuts in understanding the world and in placing yourself in a world that is chaotic, uncertain, complicated, etc., especially in terms of identity. So it's much easier to fall back on established notion of what female is also and look like. And I'm, talk I'm not talking about the female body, I'm talking about the female um, visual design language. And I see this uh, constantly with my students who come from, I don't know, 50 plus different nationalities. So there is a huge cultural mix. And yet, especially at the beginning of the course, uh, they, 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 they talk about the female visual language. It's curvy, it's uh, soft, uh, use the pastel colors, a little bit of frills, uh, or the male one which is very straight, uh, angular, dark colors. And you see this reflected in advertisement, of course, in which often also the language and the narrative used are, okay, words like performance or um, precision or intelligence are always used when uh, the, 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 the visual language is male. Um, if you try to buy an iron to iron your clothes, you might find exactly the same iron, but framed in different way in a domestic appliance, and then it's white and has a little bit of a flowery decoration. Or in the power tools section, then it's black and has a very Stain nice line. red long line to, to, to represent something else. And the interesting thing is that we as user-consumer people, we completely recognize this. We can swim within this, this world of design languages like this. We are all very accomplished semioticians in that sense. We have no problem whatsoever immediately to decode this. And this is what perhaps needs unpacking and subverting. For me, the biggest problem, because of course we have to admit that there are these visual languages that we all recognize, and one is considered as feminine and one is considered as masculine. We're not challenging. But you know what's the problem, and what I saw as a problem in my profession, that vi uh, let's say feminine visual language, if you compare it to the male uh, uh, language, is uh, treated as less valuable. Mm -hmm. So if I say a black masculine box, it's treated like something smart, cool, technological, very cool. And if I say something pink, rounded, it's treated like something stupid, something not intelligent enough. 
And it's, there is a wonderful story, which I'm really happy about. When we introduced with Moi the Lolita lamp in 2008, we pre so presented it yes, in the pink color. And to present something in pink color in 2008 in Milan, it was really a daring gesture. We also had the title like, who is afraid of pink? Because pink was, you know, you risked your career as a designer to do a pink lamp. But if you look today, that last year the pink was one of the most used colors in Milan, you can see the progress and you can see that the color, it's not connected with gender anymore and it's not just taking at something less valuable. So this is, let's say, in my work, what I try to do on, in a very small steps with my work. So to, if there are those codes, try to somehow even them in sense of the meaning and value. Nika, were you nervous about using gender coding in that way? And so as what you've described is almost like a gender play. You wanted to use that very uh, traditional feminine uh, sort of design language and symbols to try and eradicate that gender as part of the product. Were you concerned with how that would be perceived? Because often marketing seems to push those things to the fore. You know, if you do a pink lamp with that sort of lace detail, it gets pushed as what a wonderful feminine lamp. No, I wasn't nervous because this was also sort of my driving force, my passion. I, I'm sort of a rebellion from, from my high school, so this was driving me. But uh, there is also a question how something is presented. And let's say this lamp was presented with Moi, which was known as a platform to ask questions in design, to provoke the design profession itself, so to, to bring new meaning. So Lolita had a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, chances for success also by being presented in a platform which was known it's a platform that questions uh, standard rules in, in design. I think we have to challenge what this, these, these icons are of, of feminine and, 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 and masculine in the same way that we do in, in fashion con continuously and we can make a dress look quite masculine and a, and a pair of trousers look quite feminine and we can swap them over with, you know, and you talk about drag or it's you know, subversion or it's disguise. You know, there's, there's different ways around it. Nina, you opened the initial essay with us, with, for us with a really interesting quote from Pat Kirkham speaking about sort of gender coding and said how crude and comical quite a lot of this sort of gender symbolism is. Why is that sort of discussion within design and within objects quite so impoverished? Because at a time when there is more... Uh, interest and acknowledgement of the performance of gender, of gender fluidity, of it not of not necessarily being a very strict binary. Still within design, it seems to go back to sort of blue and straight lines is masculine, uh, pink and curves is feminine. Why is that? Why does it seem to lag behind? I wonder if there's a sort of general question, which is might might be how different disciplines or different kind of practices and and theories overlap or don't overlap, you know, because in a sense, of course, we all live in the world, we're all users, we're all consumers, you know, but actually often people are talking about the same thing, but in different genres or different contexts, and there might not be kind of overlap, you know, sort of how many, I don't know, how many designers are reading like second wave feminist theory or something like this, you know, like this is a kind of big question. I mean, some are, I mean, clearly, like there are designers who are doing extremely interesting things with gender, I mean, you know, it's not so horribly, you know, I don't know, it's not in stasis in some terrible way, right? There are very interesting things happening, we might say, you know, not least to people here. And, and, you know, but I wonder if there's a kind of like, you know, not 
conversations not being had in a certain way or thinking that we're talking about different things when actually we might be talking about the same things. You know, like I'll give you an example. I'm totally obsessed with the, the use of the female voice in, in public space and the recorded voice, right? And this is a form of design. This is a design decision. You know, and whether we're talking about intimate technologies like Siri and Cortana, you know, there's the whole secretary tradition in which, you know, you, you have a female voice and they're disembodied voices, you know, pre-recorded, concatenated voices. You know, you think about the kind of the female sounding voice, about 70% of the voices that we hear, recorded voices in Britain are, are female sounding. You know, so it's an explicit decision, you know, whether it's uh, Emma Clark on the tube or whether it's, you know, the, the Sainsbury's self-checkout machine, you know, they're often female voices. You know, and we kind of, we can think about this, but we don't of, always think about this, right? And these, these actually shape our experience of the everyday world. And they also then shape how we think about what women's roles are, we might say. You know, like, it, Siri is a kind of secret. I mean, people say horrible things to Siri, right? People treat, you know, I mean, <laughs> people are horrible in general, but you know what I mean? So there's a kind of everydayness to our experience of, let's say, gender and design that we all have, you know, regardless of whether we're interested or not. And then the question might be, how do we reflect on these things together? You know, like I have a political theory about why these, these voices are female sounding and what it tells us about, you know, the relationship between the disembodied voice and the voiceless body, for example, right? And that's just one idea. But, but then the kind of question about for the designer maybe might be, well, you know, what, what is going on there? Like, why, who is deciding these voices are female sounding? What, you know, what does it mean? Can we sort of change them? Obviously, sometimes you have options. When they introduced GPS with a female voice in Audi, I think, uh, men hated it because they were like, I don't want to be told where to go by a woman, you know? And they had to sort of change it and, you know, these sorts of things, right? So they're all happening at the same time. And, like, how do we have this kind of conversation about what, you know, what it means and who's making these decisions, I think? I think one of the reasons there why female voices are more prevalent in personal assistant is because research has shown, according to those companies, that... Uh, um, advice uh, and information is uh, best received uh, when comes from a woman, precisely because it's reinforcing the servile, uh, yeah, exactly. domestic uh, tone uh, that those uh, those uh, devices are providing for. The fact that the voice is female uh, speaks volume uh, and tells two stories, in my opinion. One is uh, again. Uh, where are the, the women designers, engineers on the team? And we know the pool uh, of engineers, coder, and uh, software engineers designing platforms. Uh, it's very niche. Young, uh, white, Asian, male, uh, they live a particular type of lifestyle. But th th there is a particular niche and, and, uh, and uh, a self-enclosed, self-referential bubble. And the other thing, perhaps, is also the voices of women in technology, in the history of technology and in the history of design have been, uh, I wouldn't say silenced, but a little bit, or marginalized. So, you know, a lot of uh, classic uh, <coughs> books of the history of design uh, present a fantastic uh, litany of achievement of uh, extraordinary male figures as if women did not really participate, or only in small part. So I wonder if uh, there is also a, an erasure of a voice uh, from a particular history of technology. It comes back uh, in servile uh, surf form through the um, PA um, and the assistant. If I may have a cheap plug for Desanya. We have an essay in this issue written by Glenn Adamson, which is a kind of potted history of the color pink and its cultural connotations. And what's interesting is how much those shift over time. Yeah. 
and sometimes how quickly they shift as well. Um, so things like what's very interesting from the essays, things you might think of as being terribly stable and fixed can sort of uh, turn very quickly. So he has a really interesting example of something like the pussy hat and how that's using pink is very different to maybe how pink's being used in, I don't know, products that's come out just before. So like um, juicy tracksuit bottoms or something like that. So it is quite interesting how quickly they can change, and I'd recommend that essay. It's the fluidity that we keep talking about, in a way, and, the, and the, everything, the sea's changing. I have, I have a five-month-old baby. If I dress her in blue, she's a boy. If I dress her in pink, she's a girl. And it, that is all I need to shift to change her, to change her pole and sexuality. It's extraordinary. You've been listening to a Desenio podcast. For more podcasts, visit desenodaily.com.